John chapter 14. If you've got a Bible, great. If you're visiting, you haven't got a Bible, that's cool. Just steal it off the person next to you or just listen up and I'll share it from the Word anyway. I've called this message The Comforting Words of the King. If you're new to Sovereign Grace, we're actually in the process of going through the Gospel of John, something we've been doing for about a, a year, I guess, at least a year, maybe a bit longer. Uh, we've been a long time in it. So far, we're just at the point in the book where Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the final time and he's now having entered into Jerusalem and they think that he's going to be the king, the Messiah. They think that he's going to overthrow the Romans and that he's going to take his seat in Jerusalem and start to rule the world from there. He explains to them that, look, actually, I'm not going to be doing that. I am the king, but I'm going to die. When all the people start to leave Jesus, they can't believe it. They're utterly gutted because they thought this was going to be the king that would take on the Romans. In effect, he was, but he was going to do it very differently. And so now he sits in the upper room with his disciples the night before he is about to die. And having administered and listened to an argument breaking out amongst them about who the greatest disciple was, he puts a towel around his waist and he begins to wash their feet, showing them not only what type of king he is, but what they're called to do in their lives as well as followers of Christ. And then in chapter 14, this is what happens next. We're going to read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 11. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is so wonderful to gather near to you in song. Our Lord, we now gather around a table in the upper room and we listen into the disciples and we listen into your responses. Father, would you have your way in our lives? This is incredible material. And so, Lord, would you, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts today, whatever our situation when we arrived at this auditorium, by the time we leave, would we leave amazed by you? Because you are the King. And these are comforting words. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by introducing you to a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton is one of my historical heroes. 
He was born in the 19th century and he was an Antarctic explorer. He was not a Christian, but he was one of my historical heroes because he was a fantastic leader. He had such a strong gift of leadership and could lead people through situations that were simply out of this world. And he really came into his own in terms of his leadership qualities when he led the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition in 1914, captaining the Endeavour. For those of you that know nothing about this expedition, Mr. Shackleton, who became Sir Shackleton, actually led a group of about 20 men into the Antarctic, and they were going to seek to go through the Antarctic and go continent to continent. But on the way, the Endeavour, their ship, got trapped in pack ice. And what happened is they thought, well, hopefully it'll thaw out a little bit and then we can move on. But it never thawed out. And instead, the pack ice began to crush the ship. So they are in the Antarctic and their ship is being crushed. Well, what takes place is Mr. Shackleton uh, orders them to abandon ship. That was on the 19th of January, 1915. On the 9th of April, 1916, having spent 14 months in the Antarctic with a few odds and ends that they managed to pluck from the ship before it went down, He made the decision that, you know what, we are never going to get off this island. They sought to try and walk to different things and then walk to whaling centres, but they realised we're never going to be able to do this because the ice is too thin all the time. Mr Shackleton decided to get him and about three of his crew into a lifeboat and they were going to row 346 miles to Elephant Island with a compass the size of a ten-pence piece, hoping that they could actually get there. And lo and behold, after five days... They did get there. They actually managed to row all the way to Elephant Island. And when they got there, they didn't find vessels. And all these vessels then came and collected all the troops. And he managed, after 18 months since they got trapped, he managed to get every last member of his crew home safely without any deaths. It was an incredible feat. And so everybody knows him as this incredible leader. But he came to mind this week as it came to this passage Because I've got this book on Shackleton, I've got about five books on Shackleton, and I've got this one book where this guy called Frank Hurley, who was a photographer that was on this expedition, he he would take pictures of the troops. And I want to show you this one. This is a picture that Frank Hurley took. What you're seeing there is some very sad, anxious, fearful faces. And that's because this was the night before that Mr. Shackleton actually got into the lifeboat and rowed 346 miles. This is the night before where he says to his guys, after leading through through 14 months of caring for them in the Antarctic, this is the night before where he says to them, guys, tomorrow I've got to go. We've got to get off this island. And so I'm going to choose three of you, the strongest three, and we are going to try and row to Elephant Island. This is their faces in response to this news. They are incredibly fearful. They're anxious. This is their leader. This is the one that they have confidence in to get them through this ordeal. And yet he's just told them that tomorrow I've got to go. I'm going to be going to Elephant Island or at least try to get you off. They know full well, if you don't come back, we're dead. And that is their response. They're smoking their pipes. They're looking nervous. They're looking particularly cold. And they're afraid. Well, albeit a different group of faces. I think if we could take a picture in the upper room this night, it would look something like that. Because they're terrified. Jesus just told them that I'm going to go. Tomorrow I'm going to die. And where you're going, you can't come with me yet. He's been their leader for three years. They've walked with him every day. They trust him. They love him. 
They believe he's the king, the Messiah, the, the one that, that they've been waiting for. And he's just announced to them, in the midst of also saying, Judas, you're going to betray me. And Judas has just run out the room. And in the midst of addressing Peter, the rock, the one that the disciples are really looking towards being the team captain, and says, Peter, you, you're going to betray me three times before the cock crows. Everybody's in disarray. And in the midst of that, Jesus is also saying, and, and tomorrow I'm going. They are fearful. They are anxious. They are struggling. And that, in some ways, then, I think is a picture of what's going on in this passage. You know, on the face of it, at first glance, this is like a really meaningful narrative. You read it and you think, yeah, that's cool. Teaches us some things about Jesus. What a gracious guy. What, how loving, how caring of the way he addresses and talks to the disciples. And yet, it's only when you stop and think about it and you look again and you see the context of the Gospel of John that you realize that in this moment, he's not only addressing the fear and anxiety and turmoil of soul of the disciples... He's addressing the fear and anxiety and turmoil of us all. He's speaking into each and every one of us. You see, this whole book is written with a purpose. Just flick over the page to John chapter 20 again. If you've got your Bible, if you haven't, that's fine. But if you have, John chapter 20, the writer, John, gives us an indication of why he is writing this book. And in chapter 20, verse 30, he says... Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, this evidence, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He's saying, listen, I'm writing this book to you as people because I really want you to see that Jesus, he's the Christ, He's the Son of God, and I want you to see that because I want you to put your faith in him so that you may have life and that in abundance in his name. That's the whole point of writing this this book. And so this book, in this book, John is no doubt addressing unbelievers. He's addressing people that do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he's saying, look, here is the evidence. Look at it. It's evidence that demands a verdict. He's addressing unbelievers, but he is also, without any doubt, addressing believers. And this passage, I think, particularly pertains to believers. See, unbelievers, this this passage and this book is designed so that you may come to faith. But for the Christian, this gospel is designed that this may cultivate faith. You may grow in faith. You may stand ever more clearly on God's word and Jesus and trust in him and find life in his name. No forgiveness, no adoption, no redemption. And know the power of what it is to live without fear, without anxiety, and without turmoil of soul. And so it addresses unbelievers, but it big time addresses believers too. See, if you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, which is many of you, the truth is, even as a Christian, we do get fearful about things, and we do get anxious about things, and we do have turmoil of soul, don't we? just like these disciples do here. We get afraid. We get nervous. Jesus himself said that man is born to trouble. And Job said, as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. And they do. Failing health. Failing issues in our bodies. Failing business. Failing faith where we start to doubt things and we get troubled about things and concerned about things. 
desire for marriage. We just we want to get married, but it doesn't seem that there's any opportunity to get married. And so how's that going to work? And we're fearful and anxious about it. And then we get married and then we get married for a long time and we start to think, man, this is really hard. And we get fearful and anxious about that. We desire to have children and then the doctor says, look, you can't. And we get fearful and anxious about, well, how is my life then going to be complete? How will this work? I, I don't know how I'm going to get through the rest of my life if, if this isn't going to work like this. And then for others that have children, they say exactly the same thing. If these kids are going to be in my house much longer, I don't know how I'm going to get through all this. And I think, isn't it ironic? Same counseling situation, just completely different situations. We all go through trials. We all go through difficulties. Some circumstances that we can change. Many circumstances in reality that we can't change at all. It's the way it is. As sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Listen, if you are a Christian, this is then what this text means to you. In a sentence, what the Savior is trying to help us see is that in the same way the disciples did not need to let their hearts be troubled, neither do you. In the same way that these 11 men, as they gather around in this upper room, are starting to be scared and fearful, and he's saying to them, you don't need to let your hearts be troubled. He's looking you in the eyes of believer as well and saying, neither do you. You also don't need to be troubled. All the things that you're going through in your lives, he's addressing them. And so he starts in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. And then from verse 2 through 12, he gives us four reasons why that is the case. He expands on it. It says, listen, sovereign grace, do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, why? I'll tell you why. I'll give you four reasons why. He addresses the disciples, and through the disciples, he addresses you. So if you, like me, are prone towards anxiety, prone towards fear, prone towards turmoil of soul, listen in, because Jesus is addressing you here. He wants to care for you as your king. So four things. Here's the first. Number one, let not your hearts be troubled because you're not home yet. First reason why you don't need to be fearful and anxious is because you're not home yet. Randy Alcorn, one of my favorite authors, says we were made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus and that place is heaven. He's recognized that we're not, this wasn't meant to be it. We were made to be with Jesus. He was the one that we would find our identity and joy and security and purpose in. And we were made for a place, heaven. We were made to be with him. And that place, heaven, is exactly what comes into view here in verses 2 and 3. Look at them again. Having said, let not your hearts be troubled, verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. You see, there is no doubt what is coming into view there, as biblically defined, is heaven. The Father's house. The place that Jesus is going to ascend to and the place that he is going to be involved with preparing a way for you in. He's talking about heaven. A place where there will be no more pain. No more mental illness, no more handicaps, no more language disorders or cancer or AIDS or tooth decay or heart disease. A place where there will be no more sin, no more murder, no more burglary, 
no more rape, a place where there will be no more death or crime or war or abuse, a place where there will be no more decay or corruption, all the things that we read in our papers day after day, heaven will be a place that will be completely without those things. Instead, that pain will be replaced with the sound of laughter. There will be one big explosion of joy in heaven. It will be a place, as biblically defined, which is filled with feasting and drinking and music and worship. It will be paradise for trees and fields and glaciers and sand dunes and seas. Everything that you see has been crafted by a God who is busy crafting heavens for you. These are just a foretaste of what is to come. In that place, we will be given new bodies where we'll be able to walk and run and touch, and talk, and see, and hear in glorious perfection in a way that we can't hear. But there, everything will be perfect. And in that heavenly realms, there will be angels that we can spend time with. There will be folks from the past, Noah, and Moses, and King David, and Paul, and Peter, and Joshua. We will be able to look Enoch in the eye and go, Enoch, where did you go? We'll be able to have conversations with the people we read about in the Old Testament and the New, and say, check it out, what was that like? Because they'll all be there. There will be people from every tribe and language and nation there, but most importantly, the Savior of the world will be there. Jesus, the one who made you, the one who knitted you together in your mother's womb, will be there to welcome you home. That's what's coming into view here. So don't let your hearts be troubled, disciples. Because you're not home yet. There's something to come for you. And look at the way he cares for them. See, what is he doing in heaven? What is he doing in the place that he is going to? He explains to them, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place, a room for you. Because I know you. And I know what delights you. Do you. Do you perceive the care of that? The intimate care of that. I mean, sometimes in our home, we have people, traveling speakers and friends, to come and stay in our home. And one thing that happens there is when they stay in our home, we like to find out, well, what do they like to eat? And, you know, are they, like, are they the hot type or the cold type when it comes to, to bed linen? I mean, how, how do they operate? And so we like to get things that they might have forgotten to bring, and we put them all on their bedside cabinet. And one of the things that's fun for me, just as a dad of, of three kids, is the way the kids really enjoy it as well. So we get a Coles and they're all picking things, random things. I mean, I don't know why, I don't know why Mr. Coughlin would need lipstick, Amy, but if you feel, you know, we, we just pick up all these things that they think that they might need. So, okay, well, let's, let's get all these things. And we try and prepare a place for them because they're coming into our home. That's just us. Imagine how much more than specific Jesus is for you. He knows you. He knows exactly what delights you. Exactly what you don't like, but exactly what you do like. And he's going ahead to prepare a place specifically for you. A.W. Tozer, in talking about heaven, says this. He says, The church is constantly being tempted to accept this world as home. But if she is wise, she will consider that she stands in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity, past and eternity, to come. The past is gone forever. And the present is passing as swift as the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz. Even if the earth should continue a million years, listen, not one of us could stay to enjoy it. And so, here's his counsel. We would do well to think 
of the long tomorrow. Friends, he's right. We would do well to think of the long tomorrow. When we think of the long tomorrow, when we think of heaven being our home, we are reminded in that moment just how short our life is. We're reminded, last year I had a friend, as the church would know, 33 years old, went to CrossFit, had a brain hemorrhage, he was dead two weeks later. Married, four children under six. And you think, how how does that happen? Gone. Psalm 103 verse 15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. Here's the impressive bit. For wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place, it knows it no more. Our lives are incredibly short. We like to think that we're going to live forever, but we ain't. Our lives are incredibly short. And so when we think of the long tomorrow, I think we're reminded in that moment that, yeah, my life is is short. But more than that, as it pertains to what Jesus is saying here and how he's using heaven, what he's explaining is when we think of the long tomorrow, it puts our troubles into their momentary perspective. See, are our troubles real? Yes. Yeah, they are. Are they painful? Yes. But we would do wise in the midst of that to think of the long tomorrow and realize we're not home yet because it gives perspective for everything. But Dave, I'm I'm desperate to get married. If I don't get married, I don't know how I'll cope. Well, you know what? You might live 50 years unmarried and God will give you grace for that each and every day of your lives. But think of the long tomorrow. Because you will live for eternity, not looking back with any regret. Yeah, but if I don't get the exam grades I need in school, I won't be able to become a doctor. Never mind. In light of eternity, does it really matter? But if I don't earn this money, I won't be able to put my kids in private education. Oh, well. In light of eternity, does it really matter? There are so many things in our lives that we think, I've I've got to do these things. But when you stop and you you think about the heavenly home, you realize they're not that important. They're not. When you're at your friend's funeral who was 33 and you're standing there, no one's thinking about what school he went to, what he did for a living, what type of house he had, what type of car he drove. No one cares. Everybody's thinking about the long tomorrow. And that puts all of our troubles into proper perspective. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because you're not home yet. And I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. And so these troubles, they are real. But they are momentary. So think about the long tomorrow. Think about the day to come. Because that will thrill your soul even in the midst of your trial. That's not all he says. Number two... Let not your hearts be troubled because your root home is me. He's just at length talked about home. He's talked about heaven. He's talked about that in the Father's house there are many rooms and that he is going to prepare one for us. And the obvious question then, is it not, is how do I know I'm definitely going to get there? Because I want to go there. I hear about those things and I see what the Bible says about heaven and you think, I am I am in. Sign me up for that bad boy. But the second question can be, how do I know if I'm going to make it? How do I know that I'm, how do I know that I'm definitely going to get there? In fact, what's the way there? Well, Jesus explains that, you know what? The way there is me. 
says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. That's true. Because if you're perceptive, as we read through John, he's told them many, many times what their route to heaven is going to be, the way that they can enjoy salvation and spend eternity with all. He's told them many, many times. Well, good old Thomas just wants one more little time because Thomas is a bit of a doubter. So in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, hang on. We do not know where you are going. That's not true. He's told you loads of times, Thomas. So Jesus doesn't even answer that, but it's like, oh, Thomas, I'm just going to leave that one out there because I've just told you. So he says, Thomas, Lord, we do not. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where we're going. Doesn't answer that. How can we know the way? Well, he's already told them the way, but this is Thomas. And so Jesus, full of grace and full of truth, starts communicating to Thomas. And I'm pleased he did because he gives us some great verse right here. In verse six, he says, listen, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But Lord, how do we know the way? Thomas, I'll tell you the way. It's me. The way is me. I've told you this before, but Thomas, I'm telling you again, I'm the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. There is no doubt that what Jesus is bringing into our minds and the disciples' minds in this moment is indeed Calvary. It is, from Jesus' perspective, on this night, tomorrow, that he's talking about right now. He is forwarding their minds to a day to come tomorrow when he will die on a rugged cross at Calvary. He's forwarding their minds to a moment where, having been falsely tried and whipped and scourged and mocked with a purple cloak around his back, and a crown of thorns upon his head, where he is beaten around the head like a fool. He's pointing their moment forward to a moment when the sky will be blackened and he will become their sin bearer on a cross at Calvary. A moment where he really will make a way for them as the truth and the life. A moment where he really will become their sin bearer, making it possible through faith in him and faith alone in him to be forgiven of their sin and redeemed and to know for sure that heaven is their home. He's pointing them, no doubt, to Calvary, to tomorrow. And yet even this night, he wants his disciples to realize something profound about their salvation. He wants them to understand that, guys, it's not about you. Your salvation and your route to your heavenly home has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. I'm the route home. I'm the one that will get you there. It's me. I am the truth and the life. And my friends, for all of us in this room, this truth is still true to this day. It's still exactly the same. All religions, all religions, whatever the religion is, works on the philosophy that I'm probably not right with God and so I need to make a way back to God. As a different people do so many different things in their lives, religious exercises, to hope that, well, if I could just do all these things, that'll get me into heaven. And Jesus says, you know what? That's not the case with Christianity. Christianity is a unique religion. Every religion says, I need to earn my way back to God. Christianity says, yes, that's true. And the only way back to God is because God came to you. 
And he is the way and the truth and the life. And the only way that heaven can be your home is to really reject all of your good works and put your confidence in his good works. It's a religion that's built on faith and faith alone in Christ alone through grace alone. It's a religion that says you will never do enough, but Christ has done enough. It's a religion that causes us to dismiss our behavior and just put our faith in his behavior. That's the whole basis of our faith. Folks, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are busy trying to work a system so that as you stand before God on that last day, hopefully he'll take you in, he will not. Because he demands absolute perfection. And I don't know all of you, but I can guarantee you're not that. Because you're probably like me, and I'm far from that. Our only hope is putting faith in another. Who? The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus. He's the staircase to heaven. He's the one on whom we rest and put our faith in him. And he is the one who we can then spend eternity with through him. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. For those of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, though, listen, this text is for you. Because God in grace, through Jesus, knows our tendency to condemnation, doesn't he? He knows what the disciples are going to be struggling with in these moments. He knows their temptation is going to be to think, after this moment, having deserted him, that, oh my gosh, surely we've not done enough then. We've blown it. We've rejected the King of kings and Lord of lords. He said to stay with him and we couldn't even stay awake and... Oh, now we've just left him as well. He knows our temptation towards condemnation. He knows our temptation towards subjectivism. Our temptation to try and smuggle in feelings. That as if it's cross plus the way I feel equals salvation. He knows that. And he knows our temptation towards legalism. The temptation to have cross plus my Bible reading, plus my prayer, plus my attendance on a Sunday morning, plus my giving. He knows all that. And so he looks you in the eyes as believers and says, listen, Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because it's not about you. Never has been. Never will be. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If heaven is going to be your home, it's regardless of you. It's only regard is towards Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and who died and then rose again and said, all who put their faith in me as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus, in this moment, in grace, is caring for us. You may look at that and say, well, hang on though, Dave. If I'm standing with God, you know, God, how can you accept me into heaven knowing all the mistakes I've made? And the Lord responds, listen, if you've put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, there is therefore no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've removed your sin as far as the east is for the west, and so welcome home. Yeah, but Dave, I don't always feel this. I don't always feel this way about different things. And Jesus looks you in the eye and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I've never mentioned feelings once. Just put your faith in me. Because I'm the way and the truth and the life. You can feel it or not feel it. I don't really mind. But put your faith in me and heaven will be your home. But Lord, what about all the opportunities that I've missed? All these things that I haven't done in my life. I'm just not really a very good Christian. Okay. Did you put your faith in me? Yes. Yeah, I believed you. Great. Then welcome home. Because I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's not about you. 
It's about me. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Number three, let not your hearts be troubled, he says, because I, as God, can be trusted. I love this bit. It comes in verses 7 through 11, and it can easily be missed in the state of confusion. But it is a simple point, and yet it is a profound point of Jesus explaining to them that you can trust me. You can have a confidence in what I am saying. So in verse 8, Philip says to him, you know what? Um, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. That word enough there in the Greek is exactly the same word as 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, where, where, Jesus, where God says through Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. The same word sufficient is enough. So it's coming with a real depth. Listen, if you could just show us the Father now, because Jesus, listen, we are on your team, and I really want to believe you. So if you could just show us the Father right now, I'm in. We're settled. We're good. And Jesus responds then in around that verse, in verse 7, and then through 9 to 11. He responds by six times, six by saying to them that he and the Father are one. Time and time again. It's quite repetitive, but it's cool. Verse 7a, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. In verse 7b, he says, From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In verse 9a, in response to Philip's request to see the Father, Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Verse 9b, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11a, I am in the Father, just in case they've missed it. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Okay, we got that, guys? I and the Father are one. And listen, then in verse 12, he says, it's verse 11, he says, listen, if, you, if, you, if you're struggling with that, Here's what I'm trying to explain to you. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am deity. I and the Father are one. But if you're still struggling with that, disciples, even after three years, then don't just believe my words. Look at my works. They've walked with him for three years. They've seen how Jesus in his life, has fulfilled over 300 prophecies that have come over 500 years. He was born in the right place, at the right time, in the right way. He's doing all the right things. All these prophecies that they would have been well acquainted with, he was fulfilling every single one of them. He's pointing them to his works, his miracles. They've seen him at the wedding. They've been hanging out at the reception with Jesus when he turns all this water into wine. They've been there holding the baskets with the five loaves and the fish. They've been there when they've been handing it out and going, what the flip, Where's all this? What the, what's this? Where's it all come from? They were there. They've seen all these things. They've seen Jesus walking out on the water before them. They've seen Jesus go up to a man who was blind and say, see. They've seen and been there when Lazarus comes hopping out of the tomb and everybody goes, he was dead. And they go, we know, he smells. And then he's coming out, but he's alive. They've seen all this. So Jesus says, if you're struggling to believe me with my words, then what about that? He wants them to realize I am God. That's why it's so disappointing when people say, on different courses that, that sometimes we do, and people say, you know what? I, I just don't get what the fuss is about. Jesus didn't even claim to be God. He claims to be God six times in four verses right here. He, he's claiming to God all the time. 
You may not believe that, whether he is or not, but the claim that he is is plain. So is he the liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? He's saying to them here, I am Lord. I'm telling you, you know me. You've seen my life. You've seen my character. You've seen my work. And he's doing all this for one reason. He's doing all this because he wants to look them in their eyes, as he does for us as a church today, and say, listen, my words, you can trust them. When I say things, you can believe it. Why? Because I'm God. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who knows you. I've been there from eternity past and will be there to eternity future. I know your thoughts before they even come into your mind. So you can trust me. Because I love you. And that's why I came after you. Do you see the tone of what he's saying? Don't let your hearts be troubled because I, as God, can be trusted. And so when I'm saying that I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you, because in my Father's house are many rooms, and when I'm saying to you that you will get there by putting your faith in me as your Lord and Savior, because I am the way, the truth, and the life, rest easy. You can trust that. Because I'm God. I know what I'm doing. You can trust me. Folks, that's true in the midst of our trials as well, is it not? Because so often in our trials we're fearful and anxious. Because really, if we're honest, we're going toe-to-toe with God and saying, God, I don't trust you. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then we say, but God, I feel like you've left me. God says, I'm going to hem you in both behind and before. Nothing will trouble you. Anything that comes into your life, I will have either sovereignly ordained or allowed. And we say, God, why did you do this? You can't love me. He says, I loved you before there was even time. I loved you enough to die for you. There are so many things in our lives that we get anxious and troubled about. And Jesus, in this moment, looks back to us and says, everything I've said, all of my words, you can trust them. Because I'm God. And I love you. And I'm for you. It is without doubt a call to faith, which is why he's claiming deity so strongly, not for his sake, but for theirs. And then number four, so beautifully, let not your hearts be troubled because I, through the Holy Spirit, will always be with you. For this, we have to cheat momentarily, which is naughty, but I don't care. Verse 16, five verses down, Jesus then says this, having still in the same context of let not your hearts be troubled. Verse 16, he says, and I will ask the Father, He's talking about when he's gone. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Listen to the care of this. I I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But Jesus, you just said you're going. I am. But Jesus, you just said that you're going to heaven, you're leaving us, and you're going to prepare a place for us, and right now we can't come with you. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. But now you're saying you're going to be with us. Yeah. What he's saying is, I'm going, 
but I'm going to send another helper. In the Greek there, the word doesn't just mean someone else. It means someone just like me. So I'm going, but I'm going to send the spirit of Jesus to you, one who will not only be with you, one who will be in you. And through him, the personal work of the Holy Spirit, I will always be with you. And he goes on in Matthew 28, then, so go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you till the end of the age. But Lord, we're just about to watch you ascend. I know, but I'll be back because the Spirit of Jesus is coming. And so I will never leave you as orphans. You feel the care of that? There are no children of God who are orphans. We're going to the Father's house one day. And prior to going to the Father's house one day, the Spirit of Jesus resides in you. So beautiful. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Because although I'm going, I'm not going at all. I'll always be with you. And I will hold you and help you because another helper is coming. One who will give himself as the third person of the Trinity to helping you and aiding you from life's first cry to final breath. And then I will come to you in death and I will take you home. It's beautiful. So let not your hearts be troubled. John chapter 20 verse 31 says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Folks, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, these words are written for you. They are written, ironically, so that your hearts would be troubled. He switches it completely on his head and he wants you to realize, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And when we hear that, as unbelievers, we should be coming away and thinking, if that's true, I haven't put my faith in you as your Lord and Savior. If you're the only way and the truth and the life, I don't believe this. It should have a troubling effect on our lives. Because Hebrews tells us man man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. You may say, well, I don't believe that. I say, that's okay, but it's fact. So we we can all just hold off and all find out together, but it's true. People may say, well, if we both jump off a cliff together, I don't believe in gravity. And I'm going to say, well, that's okay, but you're dead. You know, it's going to happen. Something is going to happen. This is factual. Man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. What are you going to do about it? You will stand before the Creator and King, as will I. You will stand as a sinner before the Creator and King, as will I. And yet, incredibly, He will look at you, and He will look at me, and He will open the book of my life before us all, and He will say, Dave, oh gosh, yeah, this isn't too great. And I'll say, I I know. So you know what, though? My son has paid your price in full at Calvary. So welcome home, son. It is scandalous grace. And then he will get to you. And he will open the book of your life, which will no doubt have less sin in than mine. And he will go, you know what? You've sinned against me. And you'll say, I know. It's going to be hard to defend it. he will say, well, your sin, having rejected my son, is still on you. So it's still to be paid. And the Bible then says very clearly, you'll be sent away from him for all eternity. Everything that excites us about heaven, hell is the complete antithesis. And you may think, well, it'll be all right. I'll hang out with my mates. No, friendship is a gift from God. There will be no friendship in hell. Okay, I'll look around. You won't have eyes. 
Eyes are a blessing from God. It's a sight. The hell is the complete the removal of all blessing. Folks, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I appeal to you. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And go home today knowing heaven is going to be my home. Not because of me, but because of the work of Jesus. This is meant to inspire you with faith that way. But folks, to all those of you that do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what I want to encourage you with in closing. In the same way that the disciples did not need to let their hearts be troubled, neither do you. Sure, sure, sparks fly up, but troubles fall. I get that. They do in my life too. Man is born to trouble. That's true. But let not your hearts go through anxiety and turmoil in the midst of that. Because you're not home yet. Heaven is your home. And that will be a day when all rest comes. And look at your life then with that type of perspective. Realize that your heavenly home is made secure, not because of you, but because of Jesus as the way and the life. Let not your hearts be troubled because Jesus, as God, can be trusted. We can stand on his word with confidence because it's written by God and spoken by God, the one who knows you and made you and will one day return for you. Don't let your hearts be troubled because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, never left you anyway. He resides in you as your helper and will never let you go. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how can we how can we approach your word seeing your comforting words and hearing them in our ears and not be affected? Lord, I thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life and as you articulate to the disciples, we do see ourselves in the crowd around them. We do take our seat at the table around them and we do realize you're addressing us too. You're helping us see in our lives very practically how we too deal with anxiety and fear and turmoil of soul. Lord, I thank you then that you can be trusted. And Lord, I do pray for all of us in this room. Would we throw ourselves on you and you alone as our cornerstone? Would we throw ourselves on you for salvation and would we throw ourselves on you and you alone? So that as we walk through our lives, we realize we're not home yet. And you will carry us there. And you will return to meet us in the sky. And you will keep us to that day because you are God. And would that give us perspective for our troubles? Or would our hearts no longer be troubled? In Jesus' precious name. Amen.